This past week on Inauguration Day, many, including myself, were disturbed to hear in a news report that President Trump, on his first day in the Oval Office, had removed the bust of Martin Luther King, and it angered many. And then we found out later in the day that it wasn't true. This happens far too much, doesn't it? The fake news thing is not a joke, and the internet is really the means by which that's all happening. People buy into something, and you get enraged, and if you don't check your facts, you go, I, you know, I got upset for no good reason whatsoever. And, you know, the, the, the scourge of the internet is that it, it's not a great place to have conversations. It's not a great place to have dialogue, You don't see healthy, constructive conversation taking place in chat rooms. It's ugly and it's nasty. And it's really the flavor of our country and one of the reasons why I think Pastor Brooks was so intentional about praying for us to be people of peace in the midst of a country that is very quick to yell at each other. I know that this skepticism about news and this news bias that many see and the funny thing is is that regardless of your political persuasion you see it whether you're a liberal and you see it in Fox News or you're a conservative and you see it in CNN uh, if you talk to somebody who's really committed to their position they're convinced that this other news station is slanting the news everybody thinks they're fair and balanced in their news presentation but it's hardly ever true Because we all bring our own baggage and opinions and everything to the way we present things. This is one of the things I talk about in the media class that I teach at Providence Christian College. And one of the discussion points this semester will be media bias. I spent some time last summer just comparing headlines during the election season to see how different news outlets um, frame a particular event for their particular audience. This is what we're up against. It's partially the Internet's responsibility, but I can actually trace the, the healthy skepticism of what's going on behind closed doors all the way back to my childhood and, and the Nixon administration's Watergate scandal. If you're not familiar with this, because like my daughter, you don't watch movies that predate your existence, All the President's Men is a really great early Robert Redford, Dustin Hoffman film about this scandal where the president and his associates tried to cover something up. And, uh, and uh, some investigative journalists uncovered it and, and discovered that all of the president's men were involved in this covert conspiracy to hide from the American people that they had broken the law in their political paranoia. As a result of that, you know, the fourth estate, which is what the journalism uh, and the media is referred to, uh, particularly true journalistic states. And the reason it's called the fourth estate, a little freebie here for you, is in many countries they'll have a, a, some type of you know, tri-form uh, of government. For In our case, we have an executive branch and a judicial branch and a legislative branch. We refer to the, the press as the fourth estate because while it's not a part of government, it, it's kind of the watchdog for the whole enterprise. In other countries, there are other three portions of it. Sometimes it's a church or a religious group, but either way, the role of the press is to try to help us, is supposed to be to try to help us find out what's true and what's not. And now in our age, it's become increasingly difficult to figure out if we can trust the information that we're getting. 
And oftentimes, if you're committed to a political position, you hear what you want to hear, and you believe what you want to believe. Today, we begin a 14-week teaching series on the book of Jonah. Even if you have a limited biblical understanding, most have a familiarity with the story of Jonah and he being swallowed by a big fish. I can remember back to my childhood days of watching cartoons and watching Warner Brothers cartoons have people show up in the middle of Big Fish and on the wall was scraped, Jonah was here. And so even people who have no interest in Christian themes understand this and will either consider it a myth or attribute it to some religious story they don't understand. What I do know is that as common as the overarching theme of Jonah and the whale is to people, very few of us really know anything about Jonah or about the book of Jonah. And so what we hope to do is by the end of this 14-week stretch to not only have you embrace it but understand it, be able to explain it, and also that you would know something of who Jonah was. Now, Jonah himself was a prophet, a northern Israelite prophet in the early 8th century B.C. You can see a reference to this in 1 Kings 14.25 when it actually speaks about Jonah. This prophet, the person who was designated the prophet, their goal and their mission was to take the word of the Lord to their culture. And in the particular case of Jonah, he was asked to take the word of the Lord given to him and bring it to Nineveh And hold it up to the people. In fact, the the passage says, call out against it. In other words, they were saying, you're heading a different direction. God is calling you to turn. Theologically, we call this repentance. He's calling out to this group. He was told, this is what you're going to do. And as we'll see, Jonah wasn't all that excited about this particular mission. He perceived that group of people as his enemies. And he really didn't want them to get mercy He was sort of hoping that they were going to get the bad news and not the good. Now, by way of introduction to Jonah, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 with a particular notion of what it means to be and see the word of the Lord. We read that Jonah heard the word of the Lord, and then he was expected and commanded to take action in response. Uh, This is fundamentally at the heart of all of our preaching and teaching here at Prism Church. Uh, Our mission is not to wax philosophically from the pulpit about life or entertain you with incredible oratory, if I do say so myself, or provide you with principles about how to live successfully, whether or not you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not. Um, We are on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and renew culture. You can see it on the back of our sign in case you ever forget it. But we're going to do this through the faithful proclamation of the word of the Lord. And we believe the word of the Lord is contained in the New Testament, in the good news of Jesus Christ that we find there. But how does one know This is a fundamental question that one has to ask when they're approaching questions of spiritual and uh, metaphysical natures. How does one know that what they're hearing is the word of the Lord? 
every week in our church, we read the scriptures and then the person who is the reader says, this is the word of the Lord. And then the people properly respond, thanks be to God. But how do you know that that is the word of the Lord? And today we want to have take a look at two considerations from Jonah. We're going to consider the experience of hearing his word and the action of sharing his word. And for the experience of hearing his word, I'll look here at verses one and two again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This is the call. He's not only given the word, but he's told to respond to the word. But the question for Jonah would be the same question for either you or me at any time in our lives. Is that reliable? Is the word that is being brought to us trustworthy? Can we trust that it's from God? Does it have authority in our life? And what I mean by that is when we hear the word of the Lord, can it for us, does it have enough weight to it to be able to declare to us or command us to change the way we live? I mean, that's an important question. It's one thing to give a head fake to the word of the Lord, but then it's another thing to say it has every right or the Lord has every right to expect that when that word comes to me, that I see it as being from God and then I actually comply with the word of the Lord. Now, when Jonah heard the word of the Lord, it was very clear to him that it was from God. And then he was known, as we'll get to in a minute, by others as a reliable prophet of God. But this question, this fundamental question about whether or not somebody needs to be listened to is actually an experience that the the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day had as well. And so from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 and 40, we read, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he, Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it, given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we really need to look at this and the whole concept of the word of the Lord and and ask two questions. One is, how did, and how do we know, how did they know whether or not a message is the word of the Lord? And how would we know specifically that the book of Jonah in the Old Testament could be considered the word of the Lord. Well, let's take the first one first, which is how did they know this was coming from the Lord? In Israel, they had a prophetic tradition. People had trusted uh, Ju- uh, Jonah's predecessors, which you can read about in First Kings and in Second Kings. But in First Kings, you read about Elijah and Elisha, these prophets of the Lord. And Jonah came from their era. They were given a word from the Lord by God, but the kings and the priests of Israel gave great weight to what they were saying. They would validate them in many ways. Kings were anointed by God, chosen by God, installed by God, ordained by God. And when these kings said, this person is a prophet of the Lord, the people said, the king has validated this prophet. When the priests come and partner with these particular prophets, the priests of the day validated the ministry of these particular prophets. But they also were held accountable by the people. 
from the standpoint that if they were wrong, they were commanded to be killed. This would make you take your job pretty seriously. Now, if you've ever been in a charismatic church where I was, you know, ultra-charismatic church when I was a, a young believer, people really are in love with the idea that they would get to be the one who would bring the prophetic word to you. And so people will sometimes, without you asking them, come up and give you a word from the Lord. And I think it is a reasonable and uh, a rational thing for you to ask, why should I believe that this person is bringing me the word of the Lord? Now, is it possible? Sure, that God has given them some direction for you, a word of encouragement for you. How would you know that? In this day, in their day, there would have been a connection to the church or in the people of God in such a way that you wouldn't have had a complete stranger wander out of the wilderness and go, hey, how you doing? I'm a prophet. Listen to me. And you would have been expected to believe that that was the word of God. There is a community in which all of this took place. And for sure, if you think that you have some word for the, of the Lord for somebody a cautionary move on your point would be to be really sure. Because while nobody is going to take your life anymore, it displeases the, God, it displeases the Lord for us to speak on his behalf and it not be true. And this is a, a weight that we carry with us as ministers here at Prism Church. So you've got in their day how they would know that there was a message, a word of the Lord. In our world, the world of the church post Jesus' resurrection, we, like the Israelites, have a, an implied trust in the prophetic history of the body of Christ. We believe that the New Testament is the word of God. The reason we believe that is because our king, Jesus, who rose from the dead, has appointed apostles and given them the authority to hear truth as given by the Holy Spirit and present it prophetically to us. He commissioned his apostles to be the prophets of truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. We read from John 16, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says to his disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. This happened just before he was being crucified. When the Spirit of truth comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How we know that the Scriptures, the New Testament, are the word of the Lord is because our risen Savior has said, these are going to be the people that I give a particular mission to, to hear truth, to understand it, to have it revealed to them, and to pass it along to you prophetically. So more specifically, how would we then know that Jonah, the book itself, was the word of the Lord or in included in the scriptures? You may have read the, that New York Times least seller that's in our lobby, Three Tips for Campus Survival. It's my one and only book. Um, that has a section in it where I talk about my experience as a college student uh, and dealing with a religion professor who was committed, hardcore, to the idea that Jonah was a complete myth and that we really didn't even know who wrote the book of Jonah, let alone was it a real person. Now, 
at the time, I was just a young Christian, uh, very excited about Jesus, but I had some very practical questions. For a guy who said he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had all these doubts about authorship and scripture and whatnot, and, and certainly didn't believe uh, that any miracle took place where a guy was inside of a fish for three days. And I asked the guy, do you believe in Jesus? And he said, yes. And I said, so if Jesus said Jonah was a real guy, would you believe that Jonah was a real guy? And he like, like hemmed and hawed. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. If Jesus is the son of God, the creator of all that is, and through him all things were made, and he says Jonah was a real guy, I'm pretty much thinking that we're going with him being a real guy. But for him, that was just too simple and stupid. And I'm thinking, you teach at West Virginia University. Come on now. I mean, aren't you pushing the envelope already with calling yourself an intellectual? And so I was at WVU, but, you know, what are you going to do about it? Well, he was, you know, I just remember being a 21-year-old going, I I don't get it. It was way too common sense for him. And additionally, the idea of a man living inside a fish contradicted his naturalistic presuppositions. And you may have some of those questions too. You may think, okay, I'm committed to this idea that nothing supernatural happens in the world. And and I would caution you to, to take, consider what you are actually saying. You are, in fact, saying, I believe in God, who I can't see or feel in any physical way or hear in any audible way. I believe in him, but I don't believe in supernatural events. So you believe in a supernatural creator who I presume if he's God, he's omnipotent, but yet there are certain things he can't do. And this is where I think the contradiction is problematic. If we believe in this Lord of all creation, this shouldn't be a problem. Tim Keller was interviewed in the New York Times. I posted this on PRISM's Facebook site. So for fun, Brooks and I, throughout the course of our week, we will uh, put little pieces of info and quips. And so you should friend us on Facebook. You should like us at PRISM Church. You'll get this kind of info on a regular basis. Keller said this in the interview. There's nothing illogical about miracles if a creator God exists. If a God exists who is big enough to create the universe and all of its complexities and vastness, why should a mere miracle be such a mental stretch to prove that miracles could not happen? You would have to know beyond a doubt that God does not exist, but that is not something anyone can prove. Jesus' testimony confirms the authority of the book of Jonah in two very important ways. One, Jesus validates the view that the Old Testament book of Jonah is the word of the Lord by just citing it and speaking of Jonah as if he was a real guy and not a myth. But secondly, Jesus ties the experience that Jonah had being in the whale for three days and coming out to his experience, which was going to be the sign he was going to give the people that his testimony was valid. When the scribes and the Pharisees said, hey, we want a sign, and he said, you're going to get the sign of Jonah, what he was saying was, I'm going to die and for three days be dead, and then I'm going to come back to life. This is going to be your sign. This is going to be the validation of all of this. And so we're confident that the book of Jonah is the word of the Lord because Jesus said that the story of it, the narrative of it, is a foreshadowing of his resurrection from the dead, which 
by the way, his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, confirms that he's the divine son of God and that the words given by the Holy Spirit to his apostles were the authoritative word of the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus makes his word, very literally, the word of the Lord. I mean, if he's alive, he is the creator God incarnate, and he said it, that means Jesus' words are God's words. Now, I hope that makes sense. It's just simple. If Jesus really is alive, we're dealing with the word of God. If he isn't, we ought to feel sorry for ourselves, and we should respect people who pity us. Because we talk to a guy who can't hear us and he isn't alive to begin with to do anything that we're asking him to do. We know that this is the word of the Lord because Jesus is the Lord. I want to look also here today at the action of sharing God's word. We took a look at the, uh, the, action, the experience of hearing God's word. When we look back to Jonah 1 and 2, Jonah 1, 1 and 2, we say, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. I love the, the going. And also the reference, that great city. It's, it's talking about the numerical size. So there's this enormous gro- group of humanity that Jonah has been told to go and take the word of the Lord and call out to it. The people are headed one way. He's saying, my message is calling them to turn and follow me. What Jonah heard was an assignment born from God's compassion on Nineveh, not an assignment that would necessarily result in the judgment of the city. We know this to be true because as we'll see, Jonah hated the Ninevites and he didn't want them to turn from the wrath of God. And that's why he figuratively and literally abandoned ship, missionally speaking, that is. To, he, he was called to share the good news and he didn't want to do it because he didn't like the people that he was sharing it with. You and I are called to share the good news of God's word in a hopeful way as well. We want people to hear about forgiveness in Jesus. We want people to turn and follow him. And the mission is to share the word of the Lord. You and I are to do that with our lives, with our words. Now this doesn't give us a license to be the ugliest version of ourselves or a religious zealot or worse, an internet troll. My favorite sarcastic tweet of the week came from John Acuff who said, remember, the best way to create change in your community and world is to yell at strangers online. (laughs) My kind of guy. Being charged to take the word of the Lord to every culture on earth is a mission that all Christians are sent on by the Lord. Subsequent to his resurrection from the dead, Jesus came to his disciples and said this in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. You hear that word go? Just like Jonah. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mission to share the word of the Lord with the hope that many will become followers of Jesus Christ still is a part of the church today. We hope that people will grow to love him and observe all that he's commanded. And it's not just a verbal assent to belief in God, 
But like Jonah's message, our call is to turn away from our selfish ways. We're calling others to join us, turning away from our sinful inclinations and follow Jesus' direction that is found in the word of the Lord. The gospel is both a call to fellowship with God and still a call to be part of his mission and culture. You were called to fellowship with God, but you were also called to be a part of reaching friends and renewing culture. This is what we do. But keep in mind, the gospel is also not just a call to culture change. And this is where, over the past century, some so-called churches have gotten away from the proclamation of the need for Jesus' sacrifice to forgive us for sins. And they've said that the church is just about doing the good works We believe that good works, that renewing culture, that reaching friends, that being a part of the prophetic mission of God is a byproduct of us knowing and enjoying the grace of God given to us in Christ. We don't do the work of the gospel to get God's attention. We already got that by grace. He loves you. He loves me. We're at rest with him. We don't have to prove anything to him. He likes you. And when you dive more deeply into the reality that we don't deserve that, it makes you want to share this good news with others. Mark Thompson wrote in his book, A Clear and Present Word, quote, God uses words in the service of his intention to rescue men and women, drawing them into fellowship with him and preparing a new creation as an appropriate venue for the enjoyment of that fellowship. In other words, the knowledge of God that is the goal of God's speaking ought not never to be separated from the centerpiece of Christian theology, namely the salvation of sinners. You see, there's a connection between the mission of Jesus for us and the mission of God for Jonah in two very important ways. First, we believe that these missions are both coming from the authoritative mouth of God and therefore are not optional. We also know and believe that This is the word of God because of the power of God demonstrated in Jonah's life and also because of Jesus and what Jesus has done in rising from the dead. Again, if Jesus Christ didn't bodily raise from the dead, then his declaration of being the divine only begotten son of God were the ravings of a madman. And furthermore, the prophetic recordings that we call the scriptures that we write and teach through every week are just big, huge, 2,000-year-old lies. Think about it. These disciples got together and colluded to create and manufacture a lie about their guru dying and coming back to life. And we're willing to die to keep that lie alive. That's what we're asked to believe when we're asked to believe that these writers of the gospel... We're just making all this stuff up to keep their power base alive. First of all, they had no power. They lived in poverty. They sought out people to serve and care for, to demonstrate the grace of God. And then when push came to shove, one day they were asked, do you really believe in Jesus? Because we're going to kill you if you say yes. And uh, 11 of the original 12 apostles died that way. See, when you make up a lie, you're not willing to die for it. In the Watergate era, one of the 
participants, one of the people who colluded with President Nixon to cover up the scandal that they were a part of was Chuck Colson. He has since gone to be with the Lord, but in prison he came to know Jesus in the 1970s and then wrote some books subsequent to that. And in one of those books he even said, the brightest minds in our country, Ivy League educated, all of them, decided they were going to try to cover something up. But the minute any of their skin was on the line, they all started talking. And these are the brightest and the best. These fishermen from Galilee created and wrote down all these fabulous lies. And for two millennium, people have believed them. This is what is at the root of our confidence in what constitutes the word of God. It is, rea- it is rooted in the reality of the resurrection which in turn affirms that Jesus was God in the flesh. And this is also the base for our peace with God. The resurrection of Jesus gives us a Savior who can hear us, a Savior who's the exact representation of God the Father, which is good news for sinners like me because he was really gracious to really bad sinners. He was kind and compassionate and patient. Praise him. But it's also a resurrected Savior who can take his own blood and go into the throne room of God and present it as a sacrifice to pay for the sins of anyone who would ever believe. And it's why we stand in the presence of God, forgiven and completely righteous in his sight. It's why the Christian is able to make such an honest assessment of our soul and not fear condemnation. It is out of this growing love for Jesus and this growing comprehension of his grace to us, a growing reflection of how kind he's been and how completely justified and okay we are with the Father, that we are able to be people of truth. We don't have to put our best foot forward. We don't have to hide our foibles and failures. We don't have to be like a politician who's trying to keep people from seeing the real truth. As the free people of God, we're forgiven by God. What do I care what you think of me? This is the reality that's supposed to be a part of the Christian's experience. We're supposed to be at peace with God. So that's what we're proclaiming. Not a holiness that you can be like me, nice and holy. You can be okay with God in spite of the fact that you're broken like me. This is the word of the Lord. Turn and follow a gracious Savior. He loves you. And this is why each week we come together to remind ourselves that we're to be living declarations of God's grace and love, shining the light of Jesus in the dark corners of our world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. I'm grateful that you're patient, Lord, because you know above all my friends in this room, I need it most. I'm thankful that Jesus, you died for our sins. I'm thankful that how holy you are compared to me is how secure I am in your presence. I couldn't be any holier because you are so holy. You have covered us in your righteousness. We are clothed appropriately because of you. Lord, would we be people who would be at rest in your presence so we would have confidence to bring forth the word of the Lord, the risen Savior who forgives our sins and heals our diseases and cares for our souls. Father, would we be a wonderful mouthpiece for you? a place of grace where people can confront 
truth and not be afraid to admit the realities of their world. Father, we'll give you thanks and praise. We'll give Jesus the honor and the glory. For we pray all these things in his name.